Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers. But who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Each week, I'm joined by my co-host, Red, and some of the best product managers in the business. Together, we're having candid conversations that help you understand the challenges that a product manager faces, how they overcome them, and the tools and frameworks that will help you thrive in the role. So let's start the show. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Schulman, and I am a marketing professor at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business, and I'm the founding director. We've started the Product Management Center, which is a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. And so we are here every week, Tuesdays at 4 p.m., and we put this out as a podcast so that you could learn how to succeed in product management from some of the best product managers in the business. And this week, we have a topic on risk management. Uh, We've got some fantastic uh, product people here to discuss and and help you learn about assumptions, when to make them, when to make them explicit, and what the challenges are if you don't. Sumeya is here every week with us, and Sumeya is a product leader, and she's going to hopefully tell you all about herself and why you need to listen to today's conversation. So Sumeya, do you mind telling them a little bit about yourself and the importance of today's conversation to both current and aspiring product managers? Absolutely. Thank you, Jeff. Hi, everyone. Good to see you all. I'm Sumeya Binganam. I'm a products management leader. Currently, I'm at VMware. Uh, I've been in this world of building software and product management for almost 20 years in financial services, healthcare, and media. Uh, And I'm excited to talk about this topic. This topic of assumption and risk management is important for two reasons. One, it allows you as a PM to identify biases that you have, assumptions and risks that you have, and clearly articulate what you're going to do about them. Uh, Sometimes there's nothing to do about them. Sometimes there is something to do, but identifying them first is one of the most important things that helps you focus on the right outcomes to work towards, on the right things to address and validate, on the right experiments to design, and ideally create more accessible products and products that have the right outcomes for your customer and user. So as a product manager, I think that's really important. And then the second reason why this topic is really important is because when it comes to overall product building, I think we all want to do the best we can and communicate with the whole team and create clarity where there is ambiguity. And one of the most important things in defining or clarifying is identifying assumptions. So to me, there is a communication exercise here that we have to talk about and a very important part of what great product managers do. Alignment, identification of risks and assumptions, and bringing everyone together to work on the same outcomes or the right objectives. Back to you, Jeff. All right. Thank you, Samaya. It's a pleasure to have you here as always. And now I want to introduce Dante, who gave us this idea for today's topic. So Dante, can you tell us a little bit about your journey as a product leader? And why did you recommend that we start talking about managing assumptions and thinking through assumptions. Hey, Jeff, thank you. I greatly appreciate the invite to the podcast. 
Just a little bit about myself. My name is Dante Delgado. I've been in product management for uh, quite some years now. Um, I started in project management early on in Microsoft and, and, and was at Microsoft for about seven years and then moved out into the startup space once I got introduced to the product manager role in a more official capacity, wanted to get my hands dirty and just get familiar with how it is to be a product manager. Because as all of us know who've walked, worked in a product space, a lot of it is about doing rather than it is when it comes to learning. And so um, I brought this up because this is something that I think when we talk about like growing as a product manager, over our careers, first as individual contributors, but also just moving into a leadership role. It's very easy to fall into being comfortable with the ebbs and flows of being in a product space. And that's an easy way that assumptions about both the product that you're working on, the market you're in, the customers that you serve comes into play. And so I thought it would be a very pertinent topic to talk about, especially when we're talking about succeeding in your product management career. All right. Thank you, Dante. Great to have you here. And Sid, I want to turn to you and see if you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and uh, helping people understand what happens if we're not thinking carefully about assumptions and making them explicit. Absolutely. Uh, This is Sid. Uh, I'm a product manager at Microsoft. Uh, I manage uh, a workload-specific storage and the platform. I've been in uh, program management, product management space for quite some time. I also led the product strategy at Microsoft, what we call as SAP workload on uh, Microsoft Azure. I think, Jeff, you bring up a very good question. Okay, hey, what happens if you don't explicitly state the assumption? I think one word answer is lack of clarity, or clarity is the word that I would use for lack of assumption. And I'm coming out of a semester planning and Microsoft, any other, any large corporation, even if it's a startup, right, you're going to have multiple dependencies amongst teams. And if you're dependent on one team to deliver, an entire food chain can kind of like get uh, affected if you don't explicitly see the assumption. There might be somebody waiting for uh, uh, your uh, output, which will be an input for their processes. So, Having a clear communication path on the assumption, on the dates, the deliveries, and shape and size of the product is going to be super critical as you plan your downstream and upstream activities. So to sum it up, I would say clarity is a word that comes to mind when you don't explicitly state the assumption. I'm done speaking. All right. Thank you, Sid. Wonderful to have you here. And now it's time to introduce my co-host, Red. As we're talking about assumptions and how to make them explicit, when to make them explicit, what kind of assumptions there are and how you can do better at managing them, Red, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role involving people in this conversation? Absolutely. So so to, to remove the assumptions about that red dot above me, we are recording this conversation so that if you are unable to make it or if you have a friend who couldn't, don't worry, there's a podcast that we release every week. So if you're interested in finding more, you can always search how to succeed in product management on Spotify or Apple. Also, on top of that, we have a Slack channel, which I'm proud to say we're now chasing the big 600 number. So well over 550 product managers are in Slack right now, a part of this discussion. So if you have questions or if you want to follow up with any of the moderators or speakers, please, please just DM me, tweet me, LinkedIn me, whatever you want to do to get a hold of me, fax me if you can. And I'll get you a link to sign up for that Slack channel. For context, I'm one of the advisors for the University of Washington's Product Management Center. 
And I'm just really excited to support you all and being a part of today's conversation. We'll have Q&A later on today or as part of this conversation in just a few. But before that, really focusing on the best advice we can get around assumptions as brought forward by our moderators. So with that in mind, Jeff, I am going to feed back into helping everyone get access to the Slack channel. And if anyone has any questions, feel free to DM me. Back to you, Jeff. All right. Thank you, Red. So again, if you want to DM Red to get invited to the Slack channel, you could ask questions there and we'll pull them in here or he'll pull you up on stage in about 10, 15 minutes. But first, we're going to dive a little bit deeper to frame this problem. And my question is for Sumeya, and then I'm hoping that Dante and Sid might jump in with some examples. But can you kind of classify what types of assumptions get made either consciously and explicitly or even subconsciously? What are kind of the areas of assumptions that are involved as you're bringing a product, developing a product and bringing it to market? Yeah, Jeff, I usually like to use frameworks, (laughs) but I must say that when it comes to thinking about assumptions, I don't like to create frameworks. So when I sit down with my team, and we do this often, where we do assumption generation exercises, we just use different prompts to remind ourselves and to think about the different areas that we have assumptions around. So we have assumptions around the customer. We have assumptions around the problem. We have assumptions around our goals. We have assumptions around our constraints. And and those are all areas that come up in conversation. But beyond that, there are also assumptions or biases that we have For example, confirmation bias is one. And those come up throughout the process or throughout the product building. So there are exercises or tactical assumption management activities we can do. But then there are also throughout the life cycle of the product and throughout our interactions as a product team, there are biases and assumptions that come up that we talk about live as we identify them. So those are, that's, you know, as much of a framework I really have around assumption. And then I would say the last thing is we are all as a team aware that assumptions are built into everything we do. And so we don't look to control that. What we look to do is manage that. So trying to eliminate assumptions is not really the way to go here, but being aware of them and then managing them is what we look to do. And Dante, go ahead. Yeah, I agree with Sumeya and and the approach. I think the approach is like the most important part of addressing assumptions in a way that you lower the risk of encountering them and them hurting your project or whatever you may be working on or what part of the product you're in. And the reason I say that is because, again, like in the same breath, I don't use frameworks as well. I think they're baked into different areas. For example, on the problem side, one of the things when we're approaching customers at Compass is we're aware of our customer base being at Compass our customers are our agents that are under the compass umbrella. And so you can make a lot of assumptions because again, you're not solving for all agents across the world. You're serving for the group of 20,000 plus agents that are in the product area using our product in the brokerage. And so one of the things that you guard against to address assumptions is going into it, you put aside all that you already understand about what they do and their workflow And really, you're addressing them from the beginning again, every time you talk to them, 
How does their workflow change? What are the things that they're encountering now? Because you're talking to a customer that is directly affected by the economy, by the housing market, by all these external factors that we have no control over. And so the assumptions or even the things that you understand about them can change from day to day or week to week or month to month, depending on the ebbs and flows of all these external dependencies that they rely on to run their business. And so the approach that you have that's fresh every single time is a way that we've used to kind of guard against that. And you're really going into it. How can I understand more about your workflow? How can I understand more about the job that you're doing instead of a, of, of a particular framework? Thank you, Dante. Sid, do you have anything to add about uh, the types of assumptions that we're looking at or looking to make? Uh, I think uh, Sumeya and Dante uh, had a, a, a well-rounded perspective. One element which a lot of product managers do experience day-to-day is execution assumptions, especially when multiple teams are working on to deliver multiple features, right? At that point in time, you know, there can be moments where uh, a key feature is, is, you know, is going to fork out multiple dependencies too, right? So in- ensuring that... The, Covering up the complete execution element is going to be critical uh, when you really think about, okay, when you really do not know what the other teams are or what other team constraints are. So I think those explicitly stating those assumptions and making it clear, okay, hey, I'm dependent on you. Okay, then other person also digesting the fact, okay, hey, this team or these people are dependent on my work. Covering up the execution assumptions or execution area is going to be critical when you are actually meeting, you know, when you have to meet some deadlines and product delivery. Thank you very much, Sid. Now I want to open this up to Samea, Dante, or Sid. So it's a race to see who could pop off mute first. Can you describe specifically some assumption prompts that you've used or activities that you've used with your team to help make these assumptions explicit? I would say, so for example, one of the most important assumption generation exercises I do with my team is at the beginning of an iteration or a beginning of a discovery cycle or a sprint or a design sprint. So in those kinds of instances, just to get super tactical, we would use Miro We would generate stickies. Each person generates stickies for about six minutes. And the the prompt we start with is with the goal. So at the beginning of that iteration or the beginning of that planning cycle, we have either a problem we're trying to solve or an outcome we're trying to achieve. And so if you were to just put that on the frame or on the board and then ask everyone on the team, to achieve this specific goal, what are the assumptions you have as an individual? And yeah, give everyone a few minutes in silent generation. And then as a team, we discuss each one of those assumptions and work with them. But to answer your, and I I can talk later about the actual process of what you do after that to manage and to work with those assumptions, to answer your actual prompt or your actual question, the prompt in that case is really either, here is our outcome or goal. What are the assumptions that you have? That's awesome. I love that level of tactical detail. Sorry, Dante, before uh, we turn to you, just want to follow up with one question for Sumeya. What's like an example of how somebody responds to a prompt like that? Or how do they know what assumptions? Because a lot of times they're unconscious biases. 
Yeah, absolutely. I will use a recent example. Um, so we did the, an exercise as a team around the build versus buy evaluation. And so some of the assumptions that came up were everything from this problem area is not necessarily a competitive advantage for our company to like that is an assumption right there that someone put in on a sticky to if we are to build this, we're going to need this kind of resources, you know, data scientists, et cetera, other people who weren't on the team yet. And other assumptions such as, oh, the solution or the decision we're going to make is just based on products we know of right now, or we have maybe some constraints around budget. So all the assumptions that the team had came up, this was a team of six people, And by the end of the eight minutes we had just for generation, we had about 40 stickies of assumptions and they, they ran the, you know, the spectrum of everything, everything from budget to people, to the problem we were trying to solve for, to competitive advantage, everything you can think about from a product perspective. Thank you, Sumeya. And Dante, sorry to interrupt there with that follow-up question, but I'd love to hear either if you have a follow-up question or some thoughts to add to it. Yeah, I think that's a great follow-up question, Jeff. Um, I wanted to actually add on to what Sumeya uh, used as that exercise. We've done a similar exercise with large-scale planning, not my team specifically, but our larger team, so including my team as well, where we're really looking at walking through the actual job that the customer is doing or the actual problem that they are encountering. And when you do that, when you're kind of looking at their workflow or looking at their process that they're walking through in order to do what your product is going to fit into, what you open up is assumptions around, it's kind of a a roundabout way of opening up areas where their assumptions will be. Because what you surface is, where are the gray areas that we know a lot about this, what this customer does in this particular situation? And where are the areas that we don't know anything? And then you begin to surface like, okay, well, I thought they did this or they may do this. And here now you're surfacing all the potential assumptions that can come from, from a planning perspective in the customer's workflow. And then you're readily able to say, all right, now that we're focusing down towards planning for this particular quarter, or in this case, it was uh, half of the year. Now you can focus on, all right, these are areas where we're going to dig in. We're going to do some user research. We're going to talk more. We're going to do all the things necessary from a product standpoint to set our our execution up for success. Sid, do you have anything to add to how you generate assumptions? Uh, I mean, I think both Dante and Sumeya did cover quite a bit on that. And uh, I'd like to definitely add one element to it is persona assumption. I encounter that pretty much every day because our line of business supports both enterprise customers, small and medium scale customers, also startups. So the personas who are going to use the product are going to be different. So whenever we build a product or whenever we get into a feature and a product strategy discussion, we always state explicitly which particular market is going to address and what are the personas who are going to use a product and then you know, help us to work backwards from there on the execution elements of it. So that's the only element I would like to add to what Dante and Sumeya said. All right. Thank you, Sid. This is Jeff Schulman again speaking. And for those just joining us, we're having a conversation not just about how to succeed in product management, but more specifically how to think through the assumptions that you have and then manage them and the risk. Because ultimately, we're going to make 
assumptions consciously or subconsciously, and they might be different, different team members might be making different assumptions. Sumeya, can you talk a little bit about what you do after you've got the assumptions all mapped out and everybody's kind of laid it in their Miro board as you got super tactical, as you said for us? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Once we identify all the assumptions, and, and again, this is not a once and done kind of activity. You do this periodically with your team. It's an intentional exercise. But uh, in this specific case, when you sit down with a team and, and do this activity, after you generate the assumptions, then the next thing is to rank the assumptions and understand which assumptions are the most important ones to validate. Because essentially, all the work you do when building the product is about identifying what is the most important thing or impactful thing for your team to to build and to learn and to experiment with. And so that's really what you're doing. So what you do is you take your assumptions and you have a two by two. And the axes that you use for your two by two can can depend on your preference. You have many different options. I personally prefer two that I use a lot of the time. 80% of the time I use impact or risk, you know, the severity of the risk and impact of that assumption as one axis. And the second one is the viability or feasibility. You can use desirability, you can use other factors, but for me, usually, at least within a B2B corporate structure, viability becomes really important because, you know, there are problems that we can possibly solve, but we might not want to solve. So those are the two. And then as a team, we pick one, uh, just one of the stickies, put it right in the middle, and then everything else is tracked from that point. Every We talk about, we bring up uh, the next sticky, the person who wrote that sticky talks about what they were thinking, and then we put it on the two by two. I don't get stressed about where that two by two is, because by the end of the exercise, you can move the axes up or down or left or right. But the area you usually want to focus on from a validation perspective is the top right. Now, what you identify as super risky or really impactful and within your sweet spot or of viability and feasibility is usually what you want to work on to get the most bang for the buck and the most impact for your customer. But that's not a binary. It's not, you know, either or because you have other risks also that you can cluster and work on at the same time. And and then it becomes really about experiment design and what action do you want to take to manage, to mitigate, to exploit and explore each one of those assumptions that you generated. I think uh, that's great. Uh, the ranking and the matrix is fantastic. One other uh, element which I, I use day to day is critical path analysis. So that helps me to identify which assumptions are the one that is going to directly impact the critical path. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we have a goal. And what are the constraints to the goal? And uh, which of the which ones, if I address it immediately, is going to help us to keep moving forward? There could be assumptions where that is going to be directly dependent on the critical path. There could be assumptions that you could work in parallel to your mainstream activities. So those things need to be understood. And the framework that I use very often is critical path analysis. Sid, that's a really good point because I think 
at different parts of the process or the product lifecycle, there are different assumptions that come up. When we're talking about critical path, I think we're talking a lot about the solution or the framing. The assumptions I was talking about a second ago, I think we're really focused on discovery and around Mm -hmm. the identification of the problem and the personas and the users or the market you're trying to address. I love this point about critical path because when you're talking about execution, there are assumptions and risks that come up there too. So that's a really good point. Thank you, May and Sid. This is Jeff speaking again. I'm turning it over to Dante. Do you have anything to add about how you manage the assumptions once they're out there? Yeah, I think, you know, this was kind of mentioned, right? But really the critical path or the goal that we're working towards as a team is critical. And it's not just having it. It's also the way that we communicate it, either documenting it in a correct manner so that it is there's a source of truth available for the goals or the critical path we're on and how those assumptions ladder back up to accomplishing our goal and which ones we decide to take on and win. That is an easy way, I think, that I've used for being able to kind of manage that over time to ensure that we, one, don't take on every single or try to address every single assumption. We kind of have a ranking of those assumptions based off of the critical path or the goal we're trying to accomplish. But being able to communicate that, the easier way to communicate that that I've seen work is definitely having a place where it is documented and it can be pointed to and brought up in necessary times. All right. Thank you, Dante. Speaking of assumptions, I'm going to assume that Red is ready to take over and manage the stage. Red, do you want to tell them, remind them that what that red circle means and how they can get involved in today's conversation? Absolutely. So first of all, we are recording this conversation so we can play it back for those who couldn't make it today and for those who want to listen to their questions. Which leads me to the next one, which is if you have questions, you want to get on stage and talk to the moderators, please. We'll bring you up on stage. There's only a few requirements, though. One, you are in the business world and you have a profile picture. And two, the business that you're in is related to product or tech. Uh, if you're you know, a life coach or something else, it's great. It's just not really the, the best match for this room. So in general, if you're someone who has a question, please, this is an opportunity to raise your hand. So I'm looking at you know, Joel's Kitchen down there or, or Sarah or Hema at American Express. And you also have them to be people to follow by the speakers. So with that in mind, Jeff, let's bring up one more question to the folks on stage. And then for everyone else, if you have a question for the people on stage, don't make an assumption. Just come on up and ask away. And speaking of assumptions, now poor Red has abused life coaches ever since somebody with life coach in their profile came up and abused all of us and ruined the show. (laughs) So now poor life coaches never get a break anymore in Red's eyes. (laughs) Yeah, sad world. But anyway, for those guessing at home, I put my iPhone further away as I just got quieter. And my poor setup of my, I got a whole microphone ready to bring the podcasting voice to you. Jeff, what you Not need is a life today. coach. What you need is a life coach for you. I know. Phone. If only we would have had a life coach come on stage and yes. ask a question and advise me as to how to handle the stress of microphones not working. Anyway, so again, raise your hand. Come on stage if you want to share how you think about assumptions, how you map them. And in the meantime, Dante, I'm wondering if you could kind of walk us through you know, some assumptions that were not made explicit. And what happened? Uh, I know we already talked about what could happen, but I'm wondering if you could share some stories about what biases creep out or what problems it created by not doing an assumption mapping exercise. 
Yeah. One of the things that I will back to back at my time at Microsoft at the time I worked at the windows in the windows and devices group. Um, and it was my early introduction to product management and not understanding all of the intricacies of the things we need to know. But early on, I worked on a project that was specifically dealing with helping some of some of them move to the cloud. And so we were developing a product internally to kind of help some of our customers. So these were internal customers. You think of Xbox and some of the hardware groups there to move to the cloud. Now, the assumption that I made was based off of, you know, my view of the world in the security space, which was the cloud's not secure. No one wants to do that. No one cares about doing that. And this was an early on area, early on uh, mistake when we were in the planning stages. But one of the things that happened is it ended up delaying the timeline that we actually helped those teams move to the cloud and develop a product for them to be able to, or internal product for them, or tool to be able to, for them to be able to do it. The learning lesson around it was really around, it was my very first introduction to validating assumptions where I feel pretty passionate about it. But it was also my introduction to understand on how to communicate those assumptions out. And those communications were known but it was my job to kind of surface them to a broader audience. So even if I was not the person to come up with the answer, I at least had the right people in the room to uh, help us navigate that issue or not navigate that assumption. Thank you, Dante. And now we have our first question, first person on stage. Red, I won't steal your thunder, but we always have to get a little enthusiastic when Gordon joins us. I think he was our earliest listener, uh, earliest contributor to the stage. Always welcome to have him back. But Red, it's your stage to manage. Rock on. Well, Gordon, by way of introduction, Gordon is the story of stories for people who are interested in product management, committing to educating themselves and then growing into the role. Gordon, you are an example of what this group was designed for. So without making any assumptions about what you want to ask, the stage is absolutely yours. Wow. Thanks, everybody. Sorry I'm late. <laughs> yeah, I, I assumed that I shouldn't come up today because... Usually I just get so much value. What do I have to contribute? But something that I have been learning about recently is from uh, Teresa Torres's book, Continuous Discovery Habits. And I've been reading way too much. That's one thing I can feel confident about. And the way that she's placing assumptions within this framework, she's got a very specific framework that's worth checking out. I would, I would totally buy the book and I'm not making commission. Just, just trust me, right? No one would let me up here if I was doing that. I'm just shocked at how good this book is, but it's called the OST and it's an opportunity solution tree. And the only reason I bring it up is because all of the assumptions that we are testing in this framework stem from starting with an outcome in mind. So you have a particular, say it's like a KPI in mind, and then you sort of work your way down the tree. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on an audio platform trying to describe a visual tree. But the reason why I bring it up is because you're only testing assumptions that are grounded in specific solutions that might help kind of capitalize on an opportunity. And even her definition of opportunity gets into... Like, you know, the problem space, right? What are people's problems? What are customers saying are like problems of theirs? So I just like that the way the tree stems all the way down to experiments, aka assumption testing. And maybe I'll just pause there and say I'm just over the moon about this book as a way to shortlist certain assumptions that directly add value. 
No, this is hey. good, Gordon. And Jeff, I don't want to steal your thunder, but Sid, I saw you come off mute. What did you want to say? Can you restate the book name again, Gordon? Yeah, for sure. So it's called Continuous Discovery Habits by Teresa Torres. I think it just came out in April of this year. So hot right now. Seriously. Thank you. Was that a purposeful reference to Zoolander or am I just going pop culture tangent there? No, I can't take credit for that. No, not purposeful. Sorry, but I do (laughs) love Zoolander. Excellent. It's so hot right now. All right. So that actually is a great prompt. Thank you, Gordon. Anybody else have a book or resource that they are uh, excited about that they want to share so other people can track that down? A book or resource that helps you with assumption management? Yeah, I, I just wanted to say that I love that book, Gordon, the one you mentioned. And what I described earlier, the activity that you know I do with my teams around assumption generation and then the two-by-two around viability and impact are essentially what the book outlines too. And then you take those assumptions and design experiments around them. So I love, love that. I want to bring up a couple of other books. The first one is called The Scout Mindset by Julia Gallif. And the reason why I love that book is because it's more of a mindset training book that allows you to dig deeper and ask deeper questions and understand biases that you could have as a PM around your thinking. It's a book that really focuses on the thinking habits and fine tunes that aspect, you know, the internal mechanics of how you think about things and how you go back to first principles and work on hard problems. So I really encourage that. I love it. And it's, uh, you know, the headline of the book is why some people see things clearly and others don't. And for us product managers, seeing things clearly is one of the most important things we can do. Thank you, Samaya. This is Jeff speaking, turning the court over to Dante. Then Sid, any favorite resource of yours, if possible, we'd like to have resources or books that are helping on assumption and assumption management and risk management. But if you want to go general, go ahead. But it's the resource corner. Yeah. So I think I don't have one specifically on assumption management, but there is a section in a book that is really about the way we think when it comes to products in general. But it does have a section that talks and touches on assumptions. But a whole book I can't help but recommend more. It's a very interesting laid out book. It's a kind of a flip book in the sense that it's on one side is one book and on the other side is an actually a, you literally flip it over vertically and there's another book on the other side. But the side that I'm speaking specifically about is called, it's called Create the Future, Tactics for Disruptive Thinking. It's by uh, Jeremy Gutschit which is G-U-T-S-C-H-E. And, and he talks a little bit about, he talks a lot around kind of the way we think. It's a really an entrepreneurial book more than it is a strategic like product book, but it has a lot of concepts us as product managers tackle. And there is a section in there directly on kind of the way we think when it comes to entering into new spaces and addressing new problems. And there's a ton of things that relate to assumption management just in that section alone. I got to tell you, for a book that describes what you just described, the fact that it is a reversible flip book is very appropriate. I think, Jeff, I don't think we've ever had a book that's been recommended on this stage that has gone to that length of innovation. Unless, Sumeya, there's another (laughs) book, like the Product Manager's Pop-Up Guide to Team Management and Org Charting. I I don't know if that exists. Or the Kids Coloring Book. You know what? We need PMs to be trained at a younger age Where's the product manager coloring book? That's yeah, I know. 
<laughs> it's totally next. Yeah, yeah, I mean, how about Gay Lackman's one? I mean, to get started, right? <laughs> Let's start a GoFundMe and we, we can kickstart this thing. Okay, we have another person on stage. So, Gordon, thank you. Again, the epitome of why we're here in this group. You started interested in product management. Now you're advising people out there who are interested in the category. You're always welcome up on stage. Next up, somebody that is racing to the finish line. You have the stage, and hopefully I'm saying your name correctly, Fouad. You are someone who wrangles data. I'd like to know what your question is. Let's wrangle that out of you down. The mic is yours. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, very impressive what I'm listening and hearing here, guys. Thank you so much for having this room and this club. Thank you so much. I can't. Well, I have kind of a question, but it's kind of two side. But meanwhile, if you don't mind, I, I want to recommend two books, uh, Hooked by Neil Eyal. It's one of the greatest books. I have read it like three times, something like that, or maybe more than that. And the other book is Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely. I really recommend these two books for anyone who is, who is in, uh, in the entrepreneurial side or you know, product management and things like that. So for my question, actually, a big fan of Steve Blank. And I've learned a lot of, from him and his followers, like Alex Osterwander, you know, the business model guy, and Eric Reyes, the Lean Startup. And I've learned something and I really applied it. I mean, in, you know, I, I like practicing what I learned. And one of them is like, go out of the building and test your assumption. Anything is assumption, you know, until you, you validate the, the customer, do the customer discovery, customer validation. And it's now it's part of my mindset. Like I don't assume, actually, I go out and try. But meanwhile, I'm an analyst. I deal, I, you know, I talk with data. I use facts and try to extract some insights based on what happened. Like, uh, for instance, let's say, quick example, if I have an idea I want to validate, I go with a fake landing page, you know, it's going to cost me $100 with Google Ads and validate my assumptions. I want to clarify, maybe I misunderstood what is being said, but this is the thing, like, and there are two things. Either you go out and you try it with real customers and, you know, validate your assumption or use uh, facts and numbers. You know, what are your thoughts about that? Please, thank you. Fouad, awesome recommendations. Uh, we've had Nir Ayal here in this club multiple times. We had Steve Blank here. So we've had a lot of these conversations with these amazing people you mentioned. Definitely agree with you. I think what you're talking about here is how do you go about validating assumptions? So we talked a little bit about identifying them. We talked a little bit about understanding what to do with them, but we, we didn't talk much about the execution or how do you design experiments to validate those assumptions or actually the types of action you take against a different assumptions because some of them are all about mitigation of certain risks, some of them about designing experiments to validate and others, uh, you know, it depends on what that assumption is. So what you are talking about here, a lot of it, I think, is about the experimentation you do. And I agree, one of the best things I think anyone can do is use some of the tactics identified by Alberto Savoia in his pre-typing book. This landing page example comes up a lot. David J. Bland talks a lot here at, on this club at least once a month about ways to test experiments. So I'm more than happy for us to maybe take five or a few minutes, Jeff, if you'd like, to talk about some of the ways that we go about testing and validating assumptions. I know we've done a couple of shows or a show at least on experimentation, but happy to take your direction on this, Jeff. 
Thank you, Samaya. I feel so honored. And yes, all roads lead to experimentation, which I think is a critical part of product management with the slogan I always say to my students, always be learning. It's important to always be learning and be thoughtful about how you run experiments. I'm going to actually cede to Dante as to whether Dante and Sid, if they want to dive into a little bit on experimentation, since they are the ones that proposed our discussion on assumptions. Wow. Not all at the same time, guys. Not all at the same time. But hey, actually, one quick note here, which is interesting, and credit back to Fouad for recommending Steve Blank. It looks like your background is in starting a bunch of startups, but always be listening is about once your startup has got some legs, how do you then scale and grow past that? So Fouad, hopefully you got your listening ears on, buddy, because Sid and Dante are about to unleash. So uh, I don't know, uh, Rochambeau for it, but I think Dante... You can unmute first and give it a go. Sorry, Sid. We'll get you next. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, just to generally touch on things, you know, it's interesting because I read a lot of books that are really based around entrepreneurship rather outside of just product management, mainly because my wife owns a business as well. But really, there are a couple things that I always take into account when you're talking about experimentation in the product management space. And I take a lot of these cues from more of an entrepreneurial lens, just because I I don't want to limit the innovation around what I may see. And it's easy to kind of like, this is my lane. This is what I own. This is what I work on and be stuck there. And really being able to take that type of lens is the the way I approach it. Um, But I think overall, there's a couple of core tenets that I would take when it comes to experimentation. And and really, I look at it in a more cyclical way, which is what am I planning to do? And then and what am I implementing into that? How do I monitor those results and feed them back into what I'm doing? And then what are we going to do about that? And so these are core tenets. They're very much more business focused than they are product focused. But I think it, it gives more room for creativity when you're approaching uh, a problem space. And it's more akin to uh, experimentation on the level of I am building something grand and long scale than it is on the shorter term. And I can I can admit that because a lot of times I think from a vision standpoint, that's greater than the space that I'm in at the moment. I want to I wanna just highlight something there in the nuance. I think, Dante, that's true maybe for your current, you know, where you are or where you're practicing. But there are, you know, other companies, even large ones, where this might not be true. And this yep. is the beauty and Absolutely. the diversity of products management. I say that because I feel that the dichotomy that sometimes is created between product and business is actually a false one. And can do a lot of harm, which is why I wanted to make sure that there is an awareness that in healthy product organizations, there isn't. There is not a difference between business and product. It's all Mm -hmm. part of the same thinking. Uh, You know, the product team thinks about really four important things. They think about the product, they think about the market, they think about their channels, and they think about their business model. And all these four parts feed into each other. And ideally, all of us product managers get to work within generative cultures that allow you as a PM to contribute and to iterate and to build on any of these four parts. Yeah. And I think that's a very good point that you made, Sid, before you you jump in, because I think there has been times where I've not been in those kind of healthier organizations. I mean, I think it's more prevalent now, but 
you know, earlier on and even now in, in smaller startups where you don't have all of the necessary leadership in place, it's important to kind of keep that in mind. So I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. Sorry, go ahead, Sid. Absolutely. I think good discussion here. Uh, one element which I came to my mind in this whole conversation was with respect to assumption management or even uh, experimentation. Depending upon which stage of the product or even the company you are, there are two key elements to it, right? Uh, producer and the consumer. And typically, producer is the product teams, uh, the engineering team, the product teams, and uh, all the inshallah comes with that. The producer part and the consumer is the customer. How do you bring them together? Or how can you bridge the gap in communication and also bring the bridge the gap in terms of expectation? So having this producer-consumer mindset or even even the thoughts, right, will help you to bridge the gap with respect to what to expect. And also you meet the needs of the consumer or the customer per se. So I think that producer consumer you know framework or mindset whatever we can call that right is going to be critical in managing expectations i want to then ask a just a follow up a clarification here when we say producer and consumer is basically the question that sometimes there is a challenge for product teams to stay connected to their users is that essentially the the question Part of that, also, uh, it's not just the connecting to the users, but also it could be a producer-consumer within the company itself, right? For example, marketing needs inputs from uh, the product team, and uh, a sales team might need uh, inputs from marketing. So, uh, you know, it's a dual uh, a role, a dual persona sometimes people play. So having that, okay, to understand, okay, I'm a producer in this case, and, you know, this is a consumer. How do I empathize with the consumer better? Right. And also in terms of the consumer, right, the consumer is not like always on the receiving end. So, OK, he is a producer. I need to be more articulative about my needs so that, you know, we bridge the gap on the expectation. So that's what I always uh, use as, OK, hey, producer, consumer personas right there. Interesting. I think when we start talking about the different stakeholders, that's are important to creating products and, and having them in the market within large organizations or small. I think that's a really important thing to think about. Who are all these stakeholders? And sometimes your your product team is a stakeholder too. So I completely agree that there is, there, there is work for products managers to do in understanding who the different stakeholders, how to manage them. In this uh, producer-consumer framework, I have not used it. I'm going to have to uh, noodle on it a little bit. I think you brought up a point that I just wanted to pull, to pull out, and that's the challenge that a lot of product teams have which is staying connected to the user. And it happens, Mm -hmm. there are ebbs and flows to the product, and there has to be intentionality built into the way product teams actually do their work for them to keep that going. We had one of the co-founders or the CPO of Gusto on this week, and he talked about a few examples that worked for him. Everything from you know having panels to having some of the product team members rotate through customer or user experience or customer support to other tactics that we all uh, experience within our work, whether it's B2B or B2C. So just wanted to bring that up because I know it's a challenge for a lot of products organizations. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. You nail a, a point in there, right? I call this as a little bit of a domain empathy, right? When what do you mean by domain? What I really mean by domain empathy is salespeople think like sales, engineering people think like engineers, and marketing people think like marketing. Okay, hey, how do we, you know, our customer support things like customer support, right? So how do we bring in, uh, you know, it's not possible for an engineer to do all these stuff, but we can create those situations where they can empathize better, right? So building those culture of empathy and also uh, helping them understand, okay, what the domain entails uh, so that we bring the best product for our customers within a large organization. I think that is something that I'm super a proponent about. Okay, hey, you need to job shadow something, you know, job shadow more people or, you know, have those conversations going, right? So that, you know, we can build better products. And there's no point working in super siloed organizing, super silos, right? So it's not going to help anybody. Although it might create clarity on the rules, but I think a siloed organization cannot produce uh, great products. And yeah, I think it really, like, you touched on something critical in regards to, like, how we affect the culture around us. It goes all the way from not just our role, our team, but also with our stakeholders and with others that are affected on our part of building and launching products where you create these channels where the voice of the customer can really get down to not only for them hearing it, but also being able to really translate it into how it directly affects their role. You know, for engineering, for example, like if you have a product mindset in the way that you're building things, it really helps you understand the most efficient way or more creative ways and to introduce uh, solutions, even in the way that you're developing. Um, You know, one of the things that uh, I've seen be successful um, and that we're experimenting right now, which is, you know, you have these kind of trusted advisors on the customer side that are able to give you more visceral input on a cyclical basis. And so that you have those kind of channels beginning to be built within the culture in order for everyone to capture the customer voice and then eventually be able to capture in a way that's applicable to the role that they're in. All right. Great question, Fouad. This is the magic what happens when you bring PMs in a room with a structured conversation. This is what the product management center is all about, taking the thought leadership Uh, that we have in industry, sharing those ideas, infusing it by having it here at the University of Washington. We've got interdisciplinary faculty creating cutting-edge research that could push these conversations to the next level and really just making sure that we help everybody level up together. And so I want to turn it over, Sumeya. You're here every week on how to succeed in product management, and you're on the advisory board for the Product Management Center, and you give insight after insight every week. I'm curious if you have concluding thoughts on today's conversation that you want to impart upon those who listen today. Yeah, absolutely. I always learn from these conversations. So thank you, everyone, for participating. And and the questions were awesome. I think I want to leave the conversation with a couple of thoughts. The first one is that assumptions are an integral part of everything we do. They're just there. That's part of how we think as humans. They help us do things better, faster. And so taking the time to be mindful and identifying and being aware of what those assumptions are is really important. But then what do you do with those assumptions and why is that important? Is because you want to minimize risk. Your number one 
thing as a product manager to do beyond delivering value to your customer is minimizing the risk of failure in delivering that value. So you want to optimize on the delivery of value on positive outcomes or desirable outcomes. And you do that by identifying the assumptions that would get you there, that you think are going to get you there, both from a problem discovery standpoint or a value discovery standpoint, and also from a framing of the solution. So there are different parts within the product lifecycle where assumptions become really important. They also take on other names. I think I've used the word risk interchangeably with assumptions. We've talked about critical path and identifying risks that might impact the critical path, dependencies. There are different ways that assumptions come up. Also the word bias. These are all, to me at least, are synonyms with the word assumption. And so having clarity there is really important. The last point, my second takeaway is there, there are two parts. First is the identification, and then the second part is what do you do with those assumptions? And this is where talking about experimentation is really important. So if you are curious about experimentation, I think we have a previous podcast that you can check on the topic, uh, but always happy to talk more about that in other rooms as well. Back to you, Jeff. Thank you, Samea. And speaking of podcasts, we are 77 downloads away from a goal that we set for at the end of the summer. And it would be awesome if we could achieve it on this call. So if you want to go to your favorite podcasting app and download each of those previous episodes so that you could listen to any ones that you've missed, uh, we could have a major milestone here today and celebrate together. <laughs> so I stole Red's Thunder, but Red, before I get to Dante and Sid with the more product-focused uh, concluding thoughts, you manage the stage every week. You do it beautifully, wonderfully, whatever superlative you want to throw on there. Do you have any concluding thoughts today? Yeah, just come back every Tuesday, 4 o'clock, or download that podcast. I mean, we it'd be awfully lonely, Jeff, if we showed up and there was no one out there. But today was amazing. I'm very, very grateful for today's conversation and uh, looking forward to next one. That's it. I'm sorry. I can't give you all the assumptive thoughts that I would like to throw out there with the amount of time that we have left. <laughs> but can you give us life coaching? <laughs> <laughs> if anyone uh, wants to do a GoFundMe campaign for a kid's PM book, DM me. I'm that's all, right. <laughs> yeah, I'm all in for that. Red, thank you so much for being here. And so, Sid, you came off mute. Do you have any concluding thoughts? Or are you trying to chime in on something Sumaya had said? Well, I think uh, it's a great conversation. Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, it is a good learning experience. Of course, uh, closing thoughts, assumptions are linchpin to product success. So uh, I think uh, with that, I would say thank you. All right, Sid, thank you for being here. And actually, Red says it would be lonely if we didn't get the downloads in the audience. But I have to say, you know, just seeing and connecting product managers and seeing or hearing, I guess, the dialogue that happens and kind of the the growth that happens just among the panelists. I would do this if nobody was listening, but it really is great to have all of you here because that shows that there is a commitment to not just being better at product management, but doing product management more inclusively. 
a lot of what we talked about, a little bit of what we talked about today was about the biases that come out if we're not careful about being explicit about our assumptions. And we want to make sure we tackle those biases. In the Product Management Center, we really want to make sure that uh, this conversation isn't just about dollars and cents, but about opening up access, not just to the people who get to be product managers, but to the people who are served by the products that we're all creating. So the fact that you're all here today learning how to be better and articulate your assumptions, I I think means a lot. And we're we're happy to have you here. Dante, do you have any concluding thoughts for the audience that you want to part with? Yeah, just thankful for what you guys are doing here. This is awesome. And I'm appreciative to just be a part. Uh, The last thing on assumptions is they're not, I wouldn't say a necessary evil, but they're They can be utilized correctly or incorrectly uh, to either hurt or help the products that you are working on. So you take care of them and use them wisely. All right. Great point. And then Sumeyar said that all of this banter and back and forth, are you good? Have you said your piece or is there anything else you wanted to chime in on before I close it out? I'm good. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. So that's all for today's episode of How to Succeed in Product Management. A pleasure to have you all here. I want to give a special shout out to Gordon, who is regularly coming up on stage asking questions and uh, showing us the power of inquisitiveness. What's the right word there? But anyway, showing us the power of uh, dedication and learning. I want to thank Sarah Gallo, who really pushed us to have this dual channel experience where you could be on the Product Management Center Slack channel and uh, take insights from both and exchange them across. So thank you, Sarah Gallo. And Aptentive, the company that Red works for, and he's always shy to give a nod, they helped support turning this show into a podcast. And so last I want to say is, you know, we're on a mission. We have a mission to empower 1 million diverse product leaders to drive success outcomes, building products that are inclusive to diverse audiences. And we've got a lot of ambitious programming that's going to really help help us in that mission. But I could use your help. So if you work for a company that's looking to access a diverse talent pipeline to communicate diversity and inclusion as a company value or really help existing product managers think more carefully about building products that are inclusive and managing teams that are more inclusive. I could really use your help connecting with those companies because we want to partner with companies and, and really help them not just get the students who are in our degree programs, but really help connect with uh, so much diverse talent out there that's not yet getting the opportunity to show the world what they could do. But we're here to help them and help you show the world what you could do and and how you can make better products. So again, reach out to me or connect me to your companies. We want to partner. We're going to need to do this together if we're going to build better products and build more equitable wealth in the process. So thank you all for joining us. I hope you'll join us next week, uh, Tuesday at 4 p.m. and uh, download the podcast, How to Succeed in Product Management on your favorite podcasting app. Take care, everybody. And thank you, Dante and Sid. How did I not say thanks to our panelists and Red and Sumea for always being here? Thank you, Dante. Appreciate the subject. This was awesome. Thanks, you all. Happy to have you back. (laughs) Bye, everybody.